It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Hello, and welcome to Accelerate. I am really looking forward to talking with my guest today. Joining me is Justin Rothmarsh. Justin is the founder of Ballistics, a sales management and marketing consultancy specializing in the implementation and ongoing support of sales process engineering, which is the subject of a really compelling book titled The Machine, A Radical Approach to the Design of the Sales Function. Now, as, as you might expect, friends that are listening to the show, that I read more books about sales than the normal person, and in the main, I find them to be pretty much all the same. And it's not to say I don't find value in them. I almost always learn something new, a tidbit here or there that I can apply to my own selling. But it's rare that I read something that's as challenging, as thought-provoking as Justin's book, The Machine. You know, I wrote my first two books about an effort, as an effort to sort of fundamentally reprogram how sales professionals think about how they influence their customers' decision-making process. But I have to admit, I wasn't nearly as audacious as my guest today, as he has written a book about that really challenges the sales profession at every level to rethink the entire way it conducts business. So, Justin, welcome to Accelerate. Thank you for having me, Andy. Oh, my pleasure. So, uh, take a minute, may introduce yourself, tell us how you got your start in sales. Uh, so, I got my start in sales selling insurance, actually. Um, my brother and I had a Italian restaurant in Australia, which, which, which for a long time really struggled. And we got it to the point where it was kind of paying its own bills. And I think at that point I realized there was just no upside. You know, we hadn't chosen the location well. And so I was kind of disenfranchised with it. And a friend of mine was selling insurance and making bongo bucks. Uh, and I didn't believe that he was a particularly gifted salesperson, so I thought, gosh, if if he can do that, and he doesn't really have the gift of the gab, neither do I, I can probably do at least half as well, and that would be a significant step up from what I was doing. So I said to my brother, look, you know, you, you keep managing this thing if you really want to, I need to go and make some money. So I um, sold insurance. That, that was how I got my start. Hmm. So, <laughs> a path from there to writing this book. But I mean, what was what was the impetus to writing the machine? I mean, what what had you seen that said, okay, this is this is a question I have to address. So, I, for whatever reason, I was lucky in that I rose very quickly up through the ranks in sales. I think my first weekend, I made eight thousand dollars in commission, which kind of woke me up. You know, I it made me realize, well, there's actually some potential here to make some money, and um, and I. Because I was aware of the fact that I wasn't naturally a, a, a salesperson, I was a, a, a student from the very beginning. Um, I never took a, th- a thing for for granted. Mm-hmm. Uh, like a lot of salespeople, I consumed all of the materials, but I think different from most salespeople, most people would consume them and customize them, but I never did. I consumed them and kept them exactly the same in, to the point where people used to say to me, do you have an American accent? Because I'd listen to <laughs> you know, cassettes. Over and over again from Zig Ziglar. You know, Tom Peters and yeah, yeah. Zig Ziglar and so on. Um, so I ended up, I joined a bigger company. I ended up running a team of 25. Then I, then I ran a team of 100 people. Uh, and then I ended up running the t- team as a whole, which was about 400 people. And uh, it, 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 running a team of insurance salespeople was a tough gig, a lot of recruiting. We recruited about 400 plus people a year to maintain a team of about 100. So the best salesperson in the organization really you know, got, got given the recruiting uh, gig. 
Uh, that was what really drove the organization. So it was a boiler shop type environment, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, a boiler room type environment. I, I left, uh, and that was a point in time in Australia where the insurance industry was imploding and taking down some of the big players with it, uh, um, which is a whole other story. But uh, uh, myself and the founder of the firm that I worked for uh, um, ended up in this startup called Hudson Institute. And at Hudson, we were selling a membership-based program, which is, uh, which is popular nowadays, but it wasn't back then. Um, and, and we were charging a monthly fee for, I actually know it was an annual fee for access to this uh, uh, service. And the, the tagline was do-it-yourself wealth creation. So each person got access to an advisor and they got a, like a budgeting system mm -hmm. and they got you know, to attend events and so on. Um, and... It was reasonably successful until at some point we decided, two things happened. One is we started running events and the other thing was we decided to start selling financial services. And today I think Hudson has probably, uh, I'd guess, a billion dollars under management. It's a, you know, for Australia, it's a decent sized little financial planning firm. Um, but the one thing that we discovered in the beginning there was we didn't have the margins to operate a, a commission-based sales force like we did in the insurance industry where the margins were just mind-staggeringly huge. Um, so we had to experiment with ways to make our salespeople more productive. And we ended up with the model that you read about in the machine really as a result of a process of trial and error. You know, early in the piece we realized we should probably take away non-selling activities from salespeople, you know, so we'd stop them from filling out paperwork, which was great because they were terrible at it, and took away customer service and collections and everything like that away from salespeople. And, but then, the, then we got to the point where the last, thing that's, the last sort of non-productive thing that salespeople were doing was prospecting. Not, not non-productive because they couldn't do it, but non-productive because it was a huge amount of effort for very little return. So we experimented with a couple of different methods and ended up building this seminar program that put about five, 45,000 Aussies a year through paid seminars around Australia. And, that, and, we, and you know, we maintained that for probably over five years. And as a consequence, we went from salespeople who had a shortage of sales opportunities to salespeople who had more opportunities than they could possibly process in a, life, in a, in a, in a lifetime. So we ended up taking away salespeople's autonomy, putting them in offices and queuing up prospects like a doctor's office outside mm -hmm. the front door mm -hmm. just so they could process these damn opportunities at a reasonable rate. And I think by the time we got to that point, we realized, well, gosh, this is kind of a this is kind of revolutionary. We didn't start out with an intention to do this, but what we've done is we've taken away salespeople's autonomy. Um, we took away commissions somewhere in there too because we realized if we were spending these big dollars and in incurring this huge risk to run this lead generation machine, and, and the, the, it didn't warrant paying salespeople commission anymore. I mean, we just want somebody who could show the plan, do a reasonably good job of it, and, and get a handshake and then send, you know, send the person out the front to talk to the receptionist to do the paperwork in their little office and then, and then repeat with the next person. I mean, back then the salespeople were doing, I don't know, 12 or 12 presentations a day, I guess, and I, I don't remember exactly what the numbers were, but I think they would do 12 presentations a day and they were expected to sell probably at least seven or eight of these things because these are people who'd attended a seminar and right. left in a, in a wild frenzy just looking for, to write a check to someone. Right. So that, that was the first iteration of, of the model. Um, and it, it, I left Hudson and launched my own business. There were so many things, so many learnings there to, tr to try and capitalize on. 
So yeah, we, we start off building a direct marketing agency, which eventually, but, we, but I always maintained an interest in the engineering of the sales function because of that experience that we've been through. And over the years, figured out how to apply the same sort of first principles to other, other environments. So why don't you just outline briefly, you sort of touched on it, um, is sort of outline the concept behind the machine. I mean, you've got some, some guiding principles, but just on top level so people understand it, because there is already taking place some specialization in certain industries within the sales function, but nothing that really takes it as far as you advocate for in the machine. Yeah, so the, the central idea is just division of labor. That's all, or specialization. And you would think that wouldn't be particularly revolutionary, um, uh, but, but it is for a couple of reasons. One is that, that for whatever reason, the executive team has assumed forever that sales is fundamentally different from the rest of the organization, and it doesn't naturally make sense to apply division of labor. But even, even if you look at organizations uh, um, who are maybe a little more progressive and who are trying to apply division of labor. Um, so, so today you'll see organizations where the marketing department's trying to generate leads for salespeople, or you'll see organizations where there's a customer service team that's trying to take away from salespeople the responsibility for processing transactions oh. and generating quotes and so on. Yeah, customer. The one, thing, the one thing that you see when you look at all these organizations who proclaim that, they, that they're venturing down the, the, the division of labor path is that in all cases, the salespeople still owns the sales opportunity. The salesperson still owns the sales opportunity, and the salesperson still owns uh, the account. So you end up in a situation where the tail's wagging the dog, in effect. You've got a, a lone agent out in the field with no visibility of anything other than the customer he or she happens to be sitting in front of right now, trying to direct a team of people who are back in head office. And that makes no sense in the world, no, no, no sense at all. If you liken what we're talking about to a project environment, it'd be like saying, let's, let's send our project manager out in the field, remote from all of the, the, the f f remote from the rest of the project resource pool, and see how well they function as a project manager. So I, I think that, that at a superficial level, it looks like organizations are pushing towards division of labor, but they're actually not. Yeah, and so, I mean, you talk about, you label this the, the dysfunction that exists within sales, and you have a, like a six-question assessment that companies can give themselves to determine whether or not they have this dysfunction existing in their, their company. Why don't you just walk through that real quickly, because I thought that was really interesting. Oh, do you, do you remember the questions? Oh, sure. So, no, the sixth one, <laughs> of course I do. So, I mean, the first one was, you know, um, that your sale of expensive products are dependent on personal relationships. And, you know, these are the myths, you know, do you still believe these myths, you know, about your, about your company? And, and I thought that was interesting because, you know, this research has been done multiple times that's saying that of survey, uh, surveys of buyers, a Gallup organization did one, saying that, yeah, buyers don't value the relationship with salespeople nearly as much as the salespeople think they do. <laughs> so so here, here's, here's my view on that. I think yeah. that... Um, that if you're, if you're making a purchase, uh, your primary interest is not in a relationship with the salesperson. The primary purchase is, your primary interest is in the economics of the transaction. You know, will this thing that I'm buying do what it's meant to do and, it, and does it represent value for money? Now, there are some buying situations where, where you can, 
where you can make that decision fairly easily, where there's not an enormous amount of uncertainty involved. Mm-hmm. So, so in other words, you can do like a, is it called a Benjamin Franklin analysis where you put the pros on one side and the cons on the other, or right. you might even be able to build and to model the damn thing in Excel and, and, and determine, det- and, and determine objectively, should I make this purchase or not? And to the extent that it's possible to do that, customers are not idiots. They will do that. Now, there are certain buying situations where you cannot do that. So let's say, for example, uh, someone, and I hope this doesn't happen, decided that they wanted to sue you, and you didn't have much uh, experience going to court, so you had to find a a litigator. Um, Now, in a situation where you had to find a litigator, um, you could go and meet with multiple litigators, but you would be totally unequipped to determine which of those individuals is the litigator you should be hiring. Um, so th- th- there's very little value in you trying to make a decision personally. I mean, the smart thing to do is to seek counsel from someone else. Mm-hmm. But y- you are simply unequipped with the, w- with, the, with, the, with the knowledge required or with the information required to make an objective decision. You can, it's, it's not that making a decision is hard. It's that making a decision is impossible. Now, in such a situation, and it occurs in, in, in other occasions too, if you are considering purchasing a new ERP or something, you're in a situation where you, where you don't have avail- access to all of the information that you need to make a rational, objective decision. And in those circumstances, I think the relationship that you have with the individual salesperson does play into decision-making because what you end up doing is using the relationship that you have with an individual as a proxy for the information that you would like to have in order to make a purely objective decision. So in that circumstance, it does make sense. But the problem is... Well, but the difference is the quality of the relationship. So the relationship that the customers want, in that, even in that environment, you said it's a proxy for the company. Yes. It's, it's not a deep personal relationship. It's, no, it's not. It's, and it doesn't persist. And, and it doesn't because per- if, that, if that litigator exactly. works with you on one or two court cases... Uh, or if the software company builds one or two custom applications for you, the next time you want to buy, buy something for them, you no longer have that information. What's the word? Asynchronous. Asynchronous. Yeah. Uh, or asymmetric. Asymmetric. You no yeah. longer have that information asymmetry uh, uh, because you've transacted with them two or three times. So what ends up happening, the more you transact with a customer, the less the customer has a requirement for a personal relationship because they know the, the, that information asymmetry no longer exists. It collapses. Yeah, oh, exactly. Yeah, okay, great. So um, one of the things I really liked about the machine was that it, for me, is one of the first books that sort of looked beyond really the tech bubble where you know so much of the innovation, if we will, about sales that we see taking place sort of happening in the tech space, driven by SaaS companies and so on. But you really look at it in the broader world, which is which I loved because, yeah, it's, it's not only tech companies can benefit from this division of labor and the specialization of, of roles within sales. Yeah, and tech companies are doing some stuff smart. One thing that tech companies are doing really, really well is avoiding employing field salespeople unless they absolutely had to. I, right. I spoke to a group in Silicon Valley just to couple of months ago and uh, and somebody stopped me when I was building the case for inside and they said, look, Justin, we're sold already. You don't have to do this. None of us have outside salespeople. None of us even understand what, why other organizations even would have outside salespeople. You're preaching to the choir there. Um, now, in other areas, I think there's they're, they're very much behind. I think this whole uh, this almost quasi-religious frenzy around inbound marketing or content-based marketing uh, 
has resulted in a whole bunch of SaaS companies buying into a religion that makes no sense whatsoever and is leading them down a barren path. So how, so uh, how are they being misled? Um, th this idea that you can build a self-perpetuating lead generation engine by, by producing content and, uh, and uh, by publishing regularly, producing content, and as a result of the content and the SEO juice that comes from the existence of that content, having this never-ending flow of inbound inquiries. I think that for most organizations, like 99% of organizations, that is a myth that's it, it's simply never going to occur. And all you've got to do is go and talk to some of the companies that buy the software, you know, a year out and get and talk to them about their experiences to discover that. But the problem is, is that um, there are a small, very, very small number of organizations, and we happen to be one of them. And HubSpot, of course, is another one and probably Salesforce that do have a story that's compelling enough and, and kind of t timely um, enough that, that it is possible to generate this kind of self-perpetuating lead, lead machine. Um, um, I think even in the case of uh, some of these companies, it's not true. They have big inbound, they have big inside salespeople. I would question if they generate 100% of their sales opportunities from inbound. But for most SaaS companies, it's just impossible. So you see a lot of these organizations wasting a lot of time and energy uh, 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 generating content in instead of just knuckling down and you know committing to the fact that there's got there's going to have to be a mix of inbound and outbound. Well, I mean, you, what you say in the book that most opportunities arise in spite of salespeople's prospecting activities. So, what are you referring to there? Um, well, what I'm what I'm talking about there is that most salespeople's prospecting activities are um, are extraordinarily unproductive. <laughs> I mean, prospecting is one thing that does benefit from economies of scale, and this is one thing that inbound people have right, I guess, so that, and sure. that is that the generation of sales opportunities should be the responsibility of the marketing department. Uh, and and the other area I think where the inbound people are kind of on the right track, although they don't make this point explicitly, is that is that marketing must subordinate to sales, meaning that marketing must generate sales opportunities at the rate at which salespeople consume them, and not the other way around. In other words, the the salespeople should be the system constraint, and marketing should keep up, as opposed to salespeople sitting on their thumbs waiting for marketing to hand them a lead. Um, so one thing that people who read the book end up discovering is that they have to have a way to generate sales opportunities at a scale that they never imagined was necessary before because salespeople cannot generate sales opportunities at scale. They don't have the resources to do that. Right. So what's the answer for that? Well, there's a, there's a couple of things. Number one, you've got to move the responsibility to marketing or a subset of marketing, what we call promotions. And the other thing is you have to be prepared to have a mix of inbound and outbound. Uh, you can't generate, and most organizations cannot generate all the opportunities they need from outbound. So somebody's got to be prepared to pick up the phone and, and, and reach out. To, there has to be outreach. Or, you know, uh, what, um, uh, what's his name, uh, talked about as, app, as interruption marketing as opposed to um, permission marketing. Mm -hmm. um, um, so I, I think if we look at our clients, I mean, among, among, in our little ecosystem, we are the only organization that's fortunate enough to be able to generate all our sales opportunities from inbound. The, the, and in fact, we've tried to generate uh, opportunities from outbound. It simply doesn't work for us. 
But the, the opposite applies to every other organization we work with. Inbound does not work for them, and they have to generate all their opportunities from outbound. So the trick is to come up with a proposition that we believe is going to be compelling, email a pre-approach uh, or send a pre-approach email to, to prospects the day that you intend salespeople to make initial contact, preempting the proposition, and then have salespeople pick up the phone and call and ask permission to do a, you know, an eight-minute presentation of the basic proposition. So let's let's talk about the in the time we have because we're we've gone through a little bit of time here is is your four organizing principles of the machine just so people get a sense of of what it is that you're you're advocating and if you could just sort of walk through those and we'll delve into them here in a little bit so I mean I love the first one is scheduling should be centralized and you use an interesting metaphor in the book of of uh, of an executive assistant so maybe if you take people through that. Yeah, so these four principles, I guess, apply to any environment where you apply division of labor, not just sales. But And, of course, these principles are generally recognized everywhere else, but not in sales departments. And and I touched on the first that, that first idea earlier in the discussion. If you've got a, a resource pool with people scattered all over the place, you want, to put, you want to put the person who's beating the drum to which everyone else marches somewhere central so that they've got visibility of what the hell's going on. So, um, I mean, in a production environment, that's your shop floor scheduler. In an orchestra, it's your conductor. In a sales environment, uh, the, typically what happens is the tempo of the environment is determined either by a campaign coordinator with an inside team, and that's the person who's pushing the opportunities to the salespeople. So, that's basically someone that's, yeah, driving marketing from a sales perspective, yeah. Yeah. Or in the case of a um, in the case of an outside team, we pair field salespeople up with uh, what we call BDCs, business development coordinators, and the BDCs plan salespeople's calendars for them. So they end up becoming like little mini project managers. If you think about the sales opportunities of projects, then the the person who owns the opportunity is the person who owns the schedule, and the person who owns the schedule in the in the field sales environments we build is the salesperson's executive assistant or BDC. Because they plan the calendar. So in that environment, if inbound marketing is not generating enough leads, then how does the and you have let's say we have this you know sales development model, predictable sales model, uh, revenue model. How does that uh, BDC coordinate between you know sales development reps and the field sales rep or the account exec? So, so it, the, I guess there's two types of two types of organizations that are, there are organizations that are selling an enterprise proposition and nothing else. And in, and in that case, what, what has to happen is that um, your promotions team has to generate sales opportunities, just as I discussed previously, and push them to the BDC. And the BDC has to pick up the phone and schedule a time for e- either a, an initial face-to-face meeting or more commonly an initial conference call that's going to be performed by the, the BDM, you know, like the 12-minute uh, you know, overview. But, but I think most of the organizations we work with sell a mix. That, you know, they'll have... Um, They'll have sort of tra- normal transactional business, and then they'll have enterprise opportunities on top. So to pick an example outside of technology, let's say that we're dealing with an organization that sells, I don't know, hydraulic componentry. Mm-hmm. Um, um, there's a lot of run rate type business, and the inside sales team would be predominantly chasing that run rate type business. And then every now and again, there would be an enterprise opportunity. So that might be something like selling VMI or vendor managed inventory to a customer, mm-hmm. or it might be something like selling a high end engineered product, you right. know, custom manifolds or something, as the example I use in the book. Right. Um, and in that case, what, what would tend to happen 
is you wouldn't actually pursue those major opportunities directly. You would harvest them from the activity of your inside sales team. So you'd go out and use your transactional stuff to win new accounts and to you know, penetrate existing accounts. And then as a result of all of those conversations, you know you've got a team of four inside salespeople having 30 conversations a day, 120 conversations a day, that, that, you know, that's a lot of conversations. You will end up discovering that you stumble across enterprise opportunities, which can simply be escalated to your, your, your BDM in, in partnership with their BDC. So most of our clients or most people who go down this path, they would tend to rely on the inside sales team for enterprise opportunities. Got it. And the, the talk about uh, really the specialization beyond just, uh, you know, you've talked about the, your business development, your BDC, and then your BDM, which is your, your sales rep. What other specialized roles do you see then as the way that break out in sales? So um, if, you look at a tip, if you look at a typical implementation of SPE, you would have a much bigger, much more uh, effective... An SPE, I'm just going to so people understand, sales process engineering. Yeah, you'd have a much bigger, much more effective, much more robust customer service team. Uh, and that customer service team w- would be responsible for, for, for processing all inbound traffic and for generating quotes, uh, um, um, processing, simple, uh, processing orders or all orders, not just simple orders, all orders, uh, and, and resolving issues and among issues, technical questions. And the difference between that and a typical organization is, is, is anything that fits into one of those categories, 100% of that work would be done by the customer service team, meaning that salespeople never touch it under any circumstances. Um, so that's the, fir- that's the first kind of demarcation line. Right, because all, um, all sales reps are going to do in the, in the model that you put together, all they do is talk to customers. All they do is talk to customers. So if they're, if they're, if they're inside salespeople, they have 30 conversations a day, nothing else. Uh, um, and if they are field salespeople, they'll have four face-to-face meetings a day, nothing else. Or maybe you know they might spend half a day a week or a day a week in conference calls, but they would do it the equivalent volume of work and nothing else. So to enable that, the first step is to take away customer service, and the second step is to take away prospecting, so salespeople don't have to prospect. So what typically happens is upstream from salespeople or BDCs, uh, we would have a campaign coordinator, and the campaign coordinator would kind of coordinate a bunch of upstream activities that have to occur in order to generate the opportunities that are being pushed into salespeople's queues. So, you know... Uh, we watch very carefully the size of those opportunity queues upstream from salespeople and the job of the campaign coordinator is to replenish them. And then upstream from the campaign coordinator, we'll have the marketing department that produces the creative. Uh, we'll have typically a bunch of researchers, oftentimes outsourced, who do, who do the list compilation. Um, and uh, we will also have a promotional committee that, that generally consists of, you know, you know, the head of sales and the the floor supervisor from sales, along with um, head of marketing and perhaps head of new product development, sometimes a CEO in, you know, in organizations under 100 million, let's say. And that committee will be responsible for reviewing uh, the return on effort for, from the previous period and using that data to come up with revisions to existing campaigns or to come up with new campaigns. So what we're doing is we're, we're saying that engagements with customers is not the salesperson, not solely a salesperson's responsibility. It's actually a high-level executive responsibility because the environment today is competitive enough that we can't leave it to salespeople to come up with propositions anymore. Right. So interesting is in, in this model, have you seen with the companies that you 
have worked with that have implemented the this you know SPE model is does that sort of conventional you know 80-20 Pareto distribution of sales productivity or sales performance excuse me does that tend to level out and disappear it it doesn't disappear but it levels out so we don't see the same uh, we we see uh, uh, we don't see the same uh, uh, um, divergence. Um, it would probably be I would say it would approach what you would see in a manufacturing environment. Let's say you had a manufacturing environment and you had three lathe operators or guillotine operators or whatever the case was or painters in a body shop. Um, you would obviously see a variation between their rates of work. But you wouldn't expect to see like a power law distribution. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 yes, definitely. If you build a sales environment and take away and normalize that environment such that all of the salespeople had thirty meaningful selling conversations a day, um, and uh, assuming that they're all you know talking to to you know similar prospects with a similar proposition. You will see the divergence between different salespeople's productivity reducing significantly. Now, thirty conversations a day, though, is is predicated upon some availability of of lists or names or uh, connectivity, even a rate of connectivity that it has to empower that that rate of calls. Sure. So th- there's a basic sort of level. So there's a couple of things there. Number one, obviously, you need the you need to be able to push opportunities to salespeople at that rate. But then if you don't have the lists or the offers, then you shouldn't have the salespeople. So I kind of assume that unless you are in a, unless management is in a position where they're comfortable that they can keep a salesperson's queue full of 60 to 90 opportunities at all time, they shouldn't have added that salesperson in the first place. And if they did, then we don't actually have a sales problem. Um, now, um, uh, assuming the opportunities are there, I, I guess the first requirement is that the salesperson picks up the damn phone. Um, so if then if they're unsuccessful in engaging with prospects, they're going to have sort of ninety to a, or they're going to have more than ninety. They're going to have about a hundred and twenty connects a day or attempts a day, and they're not going to get they're not going to get engagement. They're not going to get to talk to anyone. Now there's some basic there's a basic skill or set of skills that the salesperson has to learn to be able to engage with prospects, um, to, to be able to, you know, get them to pay attention and, 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 you know, consider that initial proposition. So that's a critical skill that salespeople have to learn. And, and that's kind of a, 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 a binary thing. They either figure that out, it's a, it's a knack, it's a basic skill, or they fail to figure it out, in which case there, there's no way they can progress any further in the job. So that's kind of a necessary condition for ongoing improvement. Once they've figured that out, you know, you would expect uh, uh, th- that salespeople are going to have, you know, somewhere between 20 and 40 um, in- engagements a day. But w- once they get competent, it's going to end up normalizing around 30 uh, and then once it's once you've got those thirty uh, meaningful selling interactions a day, you are going to get different results from different salespeople. But th- there's not going to be the degree. There's not going to be the range of different levels of performance that you see in a normal sales environment because there's so many more variables in a sales environment. And one of the things I think that determines the, the top performing salespeople from the others often isn't. Uh, uh, um, um, communication skills or product knowledge, often it's pain tolerance. Mm-hmm. I've seen many sales environments where the salesperson who is posting the best numbers is not the salesperson that customers would best would most like to buy from. It's the salesperson who's prepared to pick up the phone a hundred times a day and be a pest. Right, the most resilient. Exactly. So yeah. 
that, you know, that, 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 and unfortunately, the traditional approach to the design of cells environments favors that person uh, to, to an un unhealthy degree. The environments that we build don't. You know, the people who do best in, our, in the environments that we build are the people with good communication skills, people who, who, who prospects enjoy talking to, and people who have great product knowledge. Well, I think part of the way you can normalize performance as well in that environment is that given that you're just, you've taken everything else off the plate, they have nothing they can hide behind. So no. all, all, they're, all they're doing is selling. So in that environment, you, you find out pretty quickly who's going to succeed or not succeed or who's going to thrive or not thrive in that environment. Yeah, if you go into our, if you w walked into one of our clients' um, um, inside sales teams, you would see, you know, a friendly, noisy environment with with people sitting at desks. But but the first thing you'd notice is on the desks there's a keyboard and a and a mouse and nothing else. And on their computers, they've probably only been trained on a couple of modules in the CRM. They know how to use the opportunity module and they know how to create an activity and assign it to a opportunity. And, and they, they really don't know the rest of the CRM that well because that's the only thing they do. Opportunities are queued up for them. Uh, they have their headset on and they, you know, they, uh, they um, uh, assign activities to opportunities, have conversations and, you know, close opportunities, update stages that there's nothing else for them to do. Absolutely nothing. Now, it's not a boiler room environment. If, if you work in one of those environments, it's kind of fun. You know, we'll have a couple of protected calling times a day, so we have a couple of sprints. So the idea is you sprint hard for, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, a couple of hours, and then you relax. If you want to go and play pool or some of our clients have, you know, uh, what are they called, table tennis. Right. Or, or, or we have a client in Australia that has a weight room on, on, the, on their floor, and all of their, the salespeople go downstairs and push iron, press iron when they're not um, on the floor. Most of them do when they're not on the phone. So it's, you know, it's... It, can be a fun, um, a, a, a fun job. It, it doesn't necessarily require those people with incredible pain tolerances. Okay. Well, good. So, last question I had for you, uh, relative to the sales machine. Then we've got last segment show with some standard questions. Is is really has to do with sales productivity because there's really people conflate performance and productivity and sales and and. You know, I've long advocated that productivity in sales needs to be measured just like it is in the economy or in manufacturing, which no one ever does. You know, sort of a unit of output per unit of input. Yeah. So your method seems like you really enable that for people, is that they can really understand how much revenue they're generating per hour of sales time because you know you've taken the fluff out of what that hour of sales time looks like. Yeah, well, we don't. We, it, it, not just by hour of sales time, but by unit of effort. So we track every single unit of effort, and um, and we we don't just track outcomes either. We track the achievement of stages. So um, we, I guess, like everyone, we break opportunities into into stages. Um, you know, so a typical opportunity might have five different stages in it. So we can see that there's sort of a, a, a progression towards a, a sale. But we track uh, the units of effort, and, and we, we, we normalize them using this idea of a slot. So a standard you know, inside salesperson's day might have 120 slots in it, and um, the, the, uh, we have an idea of, of how many of those slots we want to fill with activity, but then we measure the number of units of, of effort that are expended in the pursuit of each opportunity and at each stage in the opportunity. So we can really see the relationship between effort and outcome. And, and really where outcome's concerned, what we're talking about is the velocity of the opportunity. Defined as what? Well, the speed at which 
I mean, ultimately, the, the velocity of an opportunity is the is the the rate at which opportunities move from being open to being won. Right. So um, from, but point a, from speaking, point A to point B. Right. Exactly. But generally speaking, you you need to you can't just focus on the opportunity you're going to win. You have to maximize the velocity of all of the opportunities in order to maximize the velocity of the ones that you're winning. So so velocity is important an important uh, uh, concept. Um, and and I think where productivity comes into it is is if you're in a situation where um, th th there's a finite pool of sales opportunities, as everyone is, then obviously you're better off with someone who's productive because they will burn few that burn few fewer sales opportunities in order to generate the same volume of output. I think that um, we build sales environments that are inherently measurable. There's people around. I mean, there's. I think there's a couple of books that talk about applying lean and particularly Six Sigma to sales. And and I don't know if you've read any of the books. I have, and I've got to say I've been unimpressed simply because in a typical sales a typical sales environment is far too chaotic for it to make any sense to even think about applying any kind of you know formal process control. To, to, to such an environment. I mean, in, mm -hmm. in all of these environments, and I come from a TOC background, the rule number one is, is eliminate the chaos. Right. You know, get the system into a state of statistical control. And until you've done that, do nothing else because, because, because um, any measurements you take, if, if you take measurements and the system is not in a state of statistical control, all you're doing is measuring noise. Now, the, the, the discussions about sales that I've, or measuring sales that I've read, conveniently ignore that point. And they talk about how you can draw run charts and all that kind of stuff. But it's, it's, um, it's BS. You know, the very first thing that you have to do is to build a stable environment. Right. Well, yeah, and almost those, everything that's written about productivity, really, I said, confuses activity with productivity, which it's not the same thing at all. Yeah. Okay. So I've got some standard questions. So the last segment of the show, I've got some standard questions I asked guests. And the first one is really, and I've asked this of <laughs> over 250 people at this point, but you're really the first one who's probably really qualified to answer it. So, <laughs> so the, uh, the question is, is, here's a hypothetical scenario. You, Justin, have just been hired as a new sales VP at a company whose sales have stalled out. And the CEO and the, the board are anxious for things to turn around. So when you think about what you would do your first week on the job, what could you do that would have the, sort of the biggest impact to start turning things around? Well, I guess the first thing that I do is go out in the field or, or sit, sit, you know, wijack with salespeople and listen on calls to to get an understanding for the dynamic of the market and what's going on. In terms of actually making changes, I guess the first thing that I would do is um, is 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 measure and try and impact the volume of selling activity. It, it, I mean, that's the easiest win in most cases. Uh, so. Um, um, in most cases, there's a lot of activity, but not a lot of true selling activity. So the first thing that I would do is define well, what is a meaningful selling interaction? Mm -hmm. You know, both on the telephone and in the field, and then I would figure out how to make that number go up significantly. Um, in a lot of cases, when we start working with organizations, we go to work on customer service first. We don't, we, you know, we leave sales alone. We're not prepared to touch it until we have a really robust customer service team for fairly obvious reasons. Well, and, we'll, and customer service, as you define it in the book, which is is really the, as you said, it could be the quoting operation and so on. Yeah. It's not necessarily, it's not the post sale support as people commonly think about it. Yeah, quoting, processing transactions, handling right. questions, technical questions, all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, so, so we build now while that's occurring, 
we don't want salespeople to stop work. And sometimes, you know, people think management assumes that salespeople are going to be terrified about this stuff. Actually, salespeople tend to be pretty excited about the work that we do. And the danger that we have is they'll sit on their hands waiting for, you know, the ballistics process to provide them this miraculously productive, more environment to operate in, which they're excited about. Now, that's not such a good thing. So one of the things that we get the sales manager to do and often it's, it's very challenging for the sales managers. We say, look, we want you to sit down every week, if not twice a week, with your sales team and, and either face-to-face -face or in a, in a web conference typically, so you know, go to meeting, and we want you to get all the calendars up on the screen side by side for the, la for the last period and the next period, so last week and next week. And we want you to go through, we want you to talk to each of the salesperson in turn about their calendar, why it looks the way that it looks, and what are we going to do to ensure that next week looks better than last week does? And, and um, in, in my experience, you, amazing things come from putting the, a salesperson's calendar up on the screen in front of everyone else. Number one, it forces them to start using the damn calendar to put mm. stuff in. And, of course, you can put some rules in around you right. know, how it's used. For example, if you book an appointment, it goes in your calendar when you book it, not when you do it. Um, um, but it puts enormous pressure on salespeople to, to have a calendar that, that looks like you would expect a professional person's calendar to look. In other words, it should have activity in it. Um, and typically, we'll, get sales, we'll, we'll set, set some rules for color coding activities so that you can see a difference between the meaningful selling interactions and you know, uh, other types of activities, which you're generally going to want to eliminate. But, but the amazing thing is we oftentimes see fairly significant uplift in sales performance just as a result of that ritual, mm -hmm. and, and and I guess it kind of uh, it would it, it it should prompt the question: Well, why wasn't sales management doing it already? <laughs> that's a whole other episode. It is. Yeah. All so right. that's what I do in the first week. Okay. Perfect. Love it. So, um, who's your sales role model? Well, it's a difficult question to answer because I'm not that that interested in sales as a technique. Um, I'm more interested in the design of the sales function. Now, there's nothing to be learned about the design of the sales function from, well, there's not a lot to be learned from many other people because we're kind of pioneering a new thing here. Mm -hmm. um, uh, to be honest, I've learned a lot more from manufacturing. I've learned an enormous amount from manufacturing, and I've been a student of manufacturing for, for, for years. So, um, um, so Edward Deming? Yes, and Stu Hart and Deming. Okay. And, uh, um, and Goldratt in particular. You know, we, we have a huge debt to, um, to Eliyahu Goldratt, who wrote the, who wrote the goal. The goal, I right. Say. I read that years ago. Yeah, and W. Edwards Deming, of course. Mm-hmm. Okay. scientific management. All right. So I mean, that's where the answers are. There's no answers in sales. I mean, the the, the sales space, to be on, to be frank, up until now has been generated has has been dominated by high school jocks with the gift of the gab, who kind of produce some sort of pseudo scientific sounding justification for all the crap they do. There's not a lot to be learned. And now there's some, the, 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 if you read the sales books, you can pick up some good communication skills and some good negotiation techniques, but you're not going to learn anything about how to design a sales function. I mean, heaven forbid somebody goes and reads up on sales and takes what they learn about sales management and the design of the sales function and, apply, and tries to apply it to the rest of the organization. True. I mean, the the rest of the organization couldn't survive with that kind, you know, with that kind of approach to to to, to workplace design. 
So there's no art to selling? Uh, sure, there's an art. There's an art to uh, th- there's an art to um, all sorts of things. I'm, I'm thinking of manufacturing. You know, I've sure. seen people, you know, hand wiring heaters. You know, and there's an art to that. But 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 the the art subsumes under the science, not the other way around. I have to think about that for a second. I'm a tennis player, so sure. think of it in a sporting context. You, you know, the what what makes the game of tennis magic is the constraints. You take away the constraints, you got two people on a beach whacking a ball as hard as they can. The, the game doesn't exist anymore. Well, it's true of every game, right? Yeah, every game. The game is defined by the constraints. So, uh, so, so art actually flourishes. Art is no different from a sport. Sure, it, you follows, know, it flourishes within constraints, right? Within the constraints, yeah. Sure. So the, the, the artistry has to subsume to the overall system. So first you design a workspace. Well, first you design a productive work environment, and then you end up with uh, p- people developing artistry uh, uh, around how they perform within that environment. You take the environment away, and uh, I suspect you end up with less art. Yeah, interesting to think about that, because actually, you know, constraints oftentimes on the artistry are applied by the buyers as well. I mean, it's not just your workspace constraints. I mean, certainly that, that plays into it. But, you know, there is this, you know, for all the, the process that you have, at some point there still is this, I'll call it this gap, I sometimes call it the last mile, where it's still a person talking to a person. There is. Yeah, so salespeople have to have communication skills, just like a lathe operator needs to know how to program the lathe. That doesn't go away. But the problem is, if you're trying to build a sales function w- where these conversations happen at scale, mm-hmm. you, you, you actually need a formal design for that sales function, oh, sure. otherwise it collapses under its own weight. Well, otherwise, yeah, I mean, otherwise you it, never have the conversations, the opportunity to, to, to have those conversations. Yeah, you end up with a whole bunch of highly caffeinated prima donnas, you know, telling one that got away stories and not a lot of selling happens. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more on that. Uh, just room for thought on the, uh, yeah, I still think there's a human element as much as, as I completely agree with the way you talk about sales process, sales process engineering is I think we have the tendency to overlook the importance and the value of what happens when two people talk to each other. In that conversation, I don't think it's all just communication skills. Though that's that's predominantly it. But um, well, I, I don't overlook it. It's just it's not my job. Oh, okay. So yeah. So it's it's <laughs> that's a different way. That's a different way of saying it. Yeah, it's it's like asking a surgeon about his bedside manner. Okay. I mean, he doesn't he doesn't talk. I mean, with not with a with minor except he 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 he, 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 he talks a, to you. A surgeon when, doesn't make money out of bedside manner. That no. sur- surgeon makes money out of what he does in between when the patient falls asleep and when they wake up again. Their bedside manner doesn't make a significant contribution right. to their you know. And I you know we're we're the same. I mean, yeah, absolutely, yes. There's a requirement for communication skills, uh, um, and certainly you know if if. If you go and look at the environments that our followers build, you quickly discover if salespeople don't have those communication skills, they got nowhere to hide. I mean, here's the thing. If you go into a typical sales environment that's built along with standard practice, you, you would be shocked at the level of incompetence. I remember we were with a furniture manufacturer just recently, and we got all of their salespeople to watch a presentation from uh, production and new product development people. Uh, where they were presented um, new pieces of new items of furniture, and we gave gave the salespeople time to prepare, and then we had them come and present back to us these items of furniture that they were meant to be selling, with only two exceptions, 
uh, the rest of the team members w- w- were were um, cringeworthy mm-hmm. in their ineptitude. Uh, but uh, and in all but two cases, the engineering and NPD people actually had done a better job of pitching these new products than the salespeople could. Oh, well, yeah, you're speaking to the chorus there. So, I yeah, mean, so, so in the sales environments we build, salespeople can't get away with that. But in the traditional environment where managers will defend those environments by using the artistry or the relationship defense, but the reality is those, those, uh, those environments uh, foster the development of, of shocking levels of ineptitude. Yeah, no, I think that... The yeah, there's a mix. There's a blend. You said it's just not your not your responsibility, but yeah, you got to move the ball all the way across the goal line, not just 99 yards, right? So, exactly. It's a necessary condition. I, I yeah. think that. I mean, again, in sport, I I think that uh, you know when you're a kid, if you want to be a soccer player, you learn the basic skills, and your your career is obviously not going to progress if you can't dribble or do whatever the basic skills are in soccer, and and I suspect relative to learning how to play soccer, you develop the basic skills pretty quickly. And then the rest of the time you spend learning how to actually play the game, you know, how to pass and how mm-hmm. to understand the game. The and, yeah, exactly. And, and I think that's very, very similar to what we're talking about here. Yeah, no, I agree. Of course it's necessary that when, we, that when our clients employ a salesperson, they have to sell. That's a given, just like a soccer player has to be able to kick a ball. But, but you know, if you're talking about building a, a, an environment w- w- that generates sales at scale, then that's kind of uh, table stakes. Uh, th- that's the price of entry, right? You'd hope, but again, to your your question, to your point you made before about the furniture manufacturers, you know, there's levels of of an aptitude that persists. That uh, yeah, take yeah, off. because salespeople can spend an entire career staying busy with just customer service. Oh yeah, or claiming that it takes that half their day just to enter into their data into the CRM system. So yeah, and solving problems for customers, and they have a good justification. If if there's no one else to do it, then they surely have to do it. But it, I mean, there are salespeople who spend you know their entire career hiding, avoiding selling. Yeah, hiding, right? Yeah. So absolutely. it probably doesn't matter that they can't present any better than an engineer can. Well, hey, I think engineers present very well. I've, I've got whole chapters in the book about that. So absolutely. Uh, I mean, so, I'm a big fan of taking engineers and turning them into. Oh, cells. me too. I've made a, made a career out of it. So yes. <laughs> yes. And and the other the other role that we, for enterprise salespeople, in my experience, the best enterprise salespeople are ex management consultants. Oh, interesting. Find someone who's worked for Accenture or McKinsey, and you know, All right. they, They're comfortable in the boardroom. They 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 think in they think in the abstract. They're comfortable selling high level concepts. Right. They make exceptional. Uh, um, enterprise salespeople. All right, great recommendation. Well, we're running out of time, but I want to thank you, Justin, for being on the show today. It's been a great conversation. Uh, tell people how they can find out more about you. Um, so my blog is the obvious starting point, salesprocessengineering.net. And if you're interested in the book and you go to fourappointmentsaday.com, you can request, and if you're in Australia or New Zealand or Canada or the US or the UK, you can request a, an extract, four chapters. We send it to you in the mail. So it's fourappointmentsaday.com. Okay, excellent. Well, again, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. And remember, friends, make it a part of your day every day to deliberately learn something new to help you accelerate your success. And hopefully you did that today. Another easy way to do that is make sure you make this podcast a part of your daily routine, whether you listen on your commute, in the gym, or as part of your morning sales meeting. That way you won't miss any of my conversations with top business experts like my guest today, Justin Roth-Marsh, who shared his expertise about how to accelerate the growth of your sales. So thanks for joining me. Till next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. 
If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. For more information about today's guests, visit my website at andypaul.com. 